Do I just get up? And just start? Oh, okay. Well, there we go. All right. Good morning. Looking forward to our time together in the Bible class. Um, hope you have your New Testaments with you as we begin to study. But before you do that, before you turn to any passage, I just want you to think about a few things, and then we'll get into our lesson. I know there'll be a bell to alert me, right, when the time's done or when everybody gets up and leaves. I'll figure it out. Okay. Yeah, so I don't know. Remember when you were baptized the first time? Do you remember what that was like? You remember when you came up out of the water and the excitement probably that was going through your mind on that occasion as you thought, this is the beginning of the rest of my life, a new life in Jesus Christ. Acts 2 and verse 41 says that the people that first obeyed the gospel the very first time, they gladly received the word and then they rose to walk in newness of life. They continue to grow steadfastly. That's how it normally goes. But something sometimes happens in Christians' lives. People don't plan this. I've never baptized anybody who's come up out of the waters and said, you know what, this has been great. But in about two to three weeks, I plan to sort of fade back in my attendance. And within a month's time, I'll be out of here. I'll fall away. People don't plan it. But it just happens. When Jesus was eating the Passover with his disciples in Matthew 26, he told them in verses 21 and 22, one of you will betray me. Now, here's the question. Which one of the 12 would eventually betray Jesus? Anybody? Judas, right? We all know that. In fact, there's not a list of the apostles anywhere with Judas's name where that little epithet isn't attached to his name, the one that betrayed Jesus or the betrayer. However, it's interesting that none of the apostles said, oh, we know who that's going to be. It's going to be Judas. You know what they all said? It's going to be me. Evidently, when they went on the short term mission campaign, the limited commission, Judas's demons came out, too. Right. Evidently, everything that Judas did, they did. There was nothing that stood out about Judas that said, He's going to be the betrayer. He something's wrong with him. Something's out of step. In fact, if you were reading the Gospels without knowledge of that, you might assume it'd be Peter because of his up and down sort of behavior. But they said, well, it'd be me. Later on, Jesus says to Peter this very night, you'll deny that you know me three times. The New Testament bears this idea out that we can be once saved and always saved. That's God's desire for everybody, that we can obey the gospel and remain in that fashion. But there are also these continuous warnings to avoid against apostasy, to remain faithful. And so Paul would say about himself in 1 Corinthians 9, 27, I keep my body and bring it under subjection, lest that by any means, after I preach to others, I would be cast away. Or 2 John 8, John says, look to yourselves that we won't lose the things we work for. Instead, we want to receive a full reward. And isn't that what you want? That's what I want. Every one of us wants to cross the finish line in Christ with our faith intact. And so that's what I want to encourage us to do this morning. There's one book of the New Testament above the others that I think helps in this regard to maintain faithfulness, to do what we have to do to remain faithful. And it does another thing. It says if somebody is unfaithful in this book, go ahead and turn your Bible to the book of Hebrews. If someone is unfaithful, here's some things that might help to get an individual back. The book of Hebrews is an epistle of encouragement or exhortation. That's what the writer says in Hebrews 13, 22. I've written you this word of exhortation in a few words or this little word of encouragement. So though there's much rebuke and there's a lot of warning and there's a lot of challenging statements at its heart, the book of Hebrews is supposed to be encouraging. In fact, it reads like a sermon. There is no epistolary greeting at the beginning. The writer just begins his message. God who at various times and in various ways, but he just drives on this point over and over again that Jesus is better. In fact, the word better appears somewhere between 10 and 12 times, depending on your translation throughout the book, because what the Hebrew writer does is he's writing to people who seem to have some familiarity with the Old Testament. And what he says to them is this. Listen, the law of Moses is great, but the law of Christ is better. And the priesthood of Aaron is great, but the priesthood of Jesus is better. 
And the messengers and the messages that came through the prophets in the old covenant. Oh, that was great. But you see, Jesus is better. And so he encourages them over and over again by exalting Jesus and his heavenly ministry, which is a continuous theme throughout the book, that the way of Jesus is better. And he does that to say, why would you ever want to leave? By the way, parenthetically, that's one thing we should do when people have fallen away. We should warn and we should rebuke, but we should also impress them with the greatness of Jesus and say, how could you ever walk away from this? No one has ever had it any better than us in the sunlight age of the gospel. That's what the Hebrew writer uses as his encouragement. Though there are warnings peppered throughout the letter, he impresses them with the idea that the life of Jesus and the life that we have in Jesus is greater than anything that we could ever wish for otherwise. So the book of Hebrews says the the way is better. We could spend our time going verse by verse and maybe at some point in the future we will do this. But what I want to do this morning in the time we have left is really give us an overview of the book of Hebrews. Go verse by verse or really chapter by chapter and pull maybe one or two verses out of each chapter and give us an idea kind of what our appetites for this book. And we can study it in detail and greater depth later. But I want us to appreciate what the Hebrew writer is driving at. And it'll help us to always remain faithful. You're here for Bible class. I know you want to be faithful and serve Jesus. But maybe there there are days when that isn't so easy. There are days when. You could very well see yourself drifting away. Or maybe you know someone who you know and love and you say, I wish this person was faithful or at least more faithful than they are. Maybe some of what we'll say this morning would be able to help them. And so if you have any questions or comments as we go throughout, I'll be happy to stop and pause and we can do that. Otherwise, I'm just going to sprint through. OK, and so that's what we'll do. I believe the key verse in the book is Hebrews three and verse twelve. Notice Hebrews three and verse twelve. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. And departing from the living God. I believe that's the thrust of what the Hebrew writer is getting at in his 13 chapters. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. Don't depart from the living God. And he unpacks that throughout these 13 chapters. That's his thrust. Don't depart. Don't go away. Hold fast. And so if we're going to get through 13 chapters, let's begin. Hebrews chapter one. Hebrews chapter one. The verses are really verses one down through three. God, who in various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he's spoken to us by his son, whom he's appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the world, who be in the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. That is, Jesus is the representation of God. When you see Jesus, you see God. And upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by him purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Number one, how do I stay faithful? How do I help someone who's stripped away? Number one, remember That in the New Testament era, we have direct communication with God through his son, Jesus Christ, via the word of God. Just think about it. All of the ways in the Old Testament, God who at various times, in various ways is how he begins. What are the various ways? How did God communicate with people in the Old Testament? What did he use or who did he use? He used the prophets on occasion. Moses was one of those prophets. He says in the book of Exodus that God spoke with Moses face to face like a man speaks with his friend. Exodus 34, 10 and 11. No man knew God as intimately as Moses did. Deuteronomy 34, 10 through 12 says the same thing. Sometimes God used the prophets. Any other means that God used to communicate with individuals? He used the fathers, the patriarchs. He would just speak out to Abraham. Abraham. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and get to the Mount of Moriah. He would communicate things to them like 400 years. Your people are going to suffer in the land, but I'll bring them back here. He communicated through that, through them. He used the Urim and the Thummim, and it's a a mystery to us on how those two implements or those instruments were used to communicate the will to the priest on their garments. But yet and still, God used it. He used dreams. He would even use a donkey. In Numbers 22, I have a friend who preaches this sermon based on Numbers 22. Look who's talking now. Now, I'm not going to preach that sermon, but it's pretty impressive, right? Who's talking? God could use anything or anyone, but 
He saved the best for last. In John chapter 2, they say, you've kept back the good wine until now. It is God's pattern and practice. He always saves the best for last. And he did in Jesus. He's the last prophet, the last spokesman to humanity. And guess what? He communicates with us through his son. I would imagine that being a Jew, individuals have wondered for centuries, though they had the 613 laws in the Old Testament. What would God do if he were me? And what would he do in this situation? And, you know, they've compounded traditions and various ideas about the old covenant law. And what would he do in this situation? And then Jesus shows up and the mystery is forever revealed. God would do and be exactly who Jesus is and was. And Paul and the Hebrew writer says he communicates with us directly through a son. The rest of Hebrews chapter one, he talks about the angelic host and that Jesus is God. Hebrews one, eight and nine. God, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at your right hand till I make your foes your footstool. And he talks about the exalted position that Jesus has above the angels. But his point throughout Hebrews chapter one is we have the greatest message that God has ever communicated. And he communicates it to us through his son. First Peter one, 10 through 12, Peter says concerning the gospel, which things the angels desire to look into. The prophets wrote things down. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea and the others didn't comprehend everything that they wrote down, but yet they did. And the angels know somewhat of what God was trying to do through the scheme of redemption. They are messengers. They are servants. But then in 1 Peter 1, Peter says they literally stoop over and wonder, what is God doing with those people? How is he going to accomplish his will? And though it's sort of shielded from their notice, we have it in the New Testament. What a great time. Sometimes people say, if you could live in any era, which one would you choose? Or I would want to walk with Jesus. Or I would want to be in this time period. The Hebrew writer says, there's never been a greater age, a greater time concerning communication with God than right now because he communicates through his son. Chapter two, Hebrews chapter two, the verses are one really down through three. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we've heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast and every transgression received a just recompense of reward, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And then he talks about how that was revealed. First spoken to the Lord and those that heard him confirmed by signs and miracles and diverse gifts of the Holy Spirit by his will. The point for the second chapter is this. If you and I would prevent apostasy in our lives, we should become better listeners. At the end of chapter one, he says, we've we've got a great message. And angels aren't individuals to be worshipped, but they are servants of us that will be heirs of salvation. Hebrews 114, because that's true, because Jesus is God's final revelation to humanity. Hebrews two and verse one says we should give the more earnest heed. That's the King James. Or we should listen more carefully to the word that's spoken. Lest at any time notice the rest of verse one. We just let them slip. We don't plan on it. We don't try to do this, but we just could sort of. Drift along. How do you prevent that? By giving them more earnest heed. Now, when we teach other individuals the gospel, we appreciate that you can't become a Christian without hearing, right? Romans 10, 17. So then faith comes by hearing, and we understand that. But notice, faith doesn't just come by hearing initially. That's the only way faith comes. It continues to come by hearing. Faith comes by hearing initially, but faith continues to come by hearing, which means we should give them more earnest heed. Many times in Jesus's earthly ministry and in the book of Revelation, he would say things like this. Matthew eleven fifteen. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Right. That doesn't mean that there are people that were earless in the first century or Malchus was the only one. Jesus put it back, though. Right. And so sometimes there were people that were earless. But normally, what does Jesus mean when he says he that has ears to hear, let him hear or Mark four twenty four, Take heed how you hear. 
Or Luke 8.18, take heed what you hear. What does that mean? It means don't just listen to the words, but actually listen and digest the message that's being spoken. Challenge yourself to do that because you could hear this message and it can go right over your head and more importantly, over your heart. And you'll miss the thrust of it. And Jesus says, you know, who's in my family, those who hear the word of God and keep it. Matthew 12, 48 through 50, because that's what counts. You want to stay faithful. Listen intently to the word of God, but don't just listen. Always listen with a plan to put it into action. What's impressive is in the parable of the soils, what Jesus, Jesus tells in Matthew 13 and in Mark 4, the first soil, he says, it's that rocky soil and the devil comes immediately and snatches the word. I think that's impressive because I hear sermons and I think, oh, that was a nice sermon. And then I start driving home and I'm thinking about the Patriots game or something. And you know what the devil's already doing? He immediately, we don't think about it. immediately, I'm going to do this based on this sermon. I'm going to go hug that person's neck. I'm going to write this person a card of encouragement. I'm going to repent of this sin while we delay the devil's schemes and plots. And immediately he snatches the word out. What if we immediately, when we heard a sermon, we said, I'm going to change this part of my life. I'm going to cling more deeply to these promises. I'm going to walk in more of God's joy because of this. Immediately, I'm going to give them more earnest heed. If we didn't have a guest speaker today or I won't be a guest much longer, will I? Right. And so if we didn't, you say, well, we're having this Bible class. We're in Isaiah. We're in the book of Matthew. And we studied chapter 17 last week. And so chapter 18 is coming up. And you say, you know what I'm going to do to give them more earnest heed? I'm going to read ahead. I'm going to be prepared. I may even jot out a few comments and questions. I'm going to be ready when the time comes. I want to be right. I want to be prepared. Give them more earnest heed to the things which you've heard. There really are no gold medals for hearing the word of God. There really aren't. James one says. Don't just be hearers of the word, but doers and a word with a plethora of Bibles. We might be deceived into thinking because I'm exposed to it and it's on my phone and it's on bumper stickers and I have it on audio that I'm really doing God's will. But give them more earnest heed because people have heard the same sermons that we have heard, the same classes that we've sat through and they've drifted. What's happened? They didn't allow it to sink deeply into their hearts. Chapter three, Hebrews chapter three. The verse is 13. Now, if verse 12 is really the main thought of the book, verse 13 gets at how we keep that from taking place. So Hebrews 3.13, he says, but exhort or encourage one another every day, lest any of you be heartened through the deceitfulness of sin. Notice verse 12. Give the more earnest heed to the things which we've heard, right? Lest any of you should fall away from the living God. How do you ensure that verse 12 doesn't become a reality in your life or in the life of those you love? Exhort one another daily while it's called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Here's the question. Do you encourage a Christian every single day? Look at the verse. Exhort one another how often? Daily. That's right. Daily. Right. And so there isn't a day. Maybe you say, well, I don't I didn't encourage anybody yesterday. And maybe not the day before that. But there isn't a day that passes by that there isn't a Christian somewhere who needs to be encouraged. Encourage one another daily so that people's hearts aren't hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Encourage, exhort. This means I have to seek opportunities out to do it. It's not just going to come to me. The book of Hebrews is a word of exhortation. He wrote this book to encourage their hearts and we should share it in his truths with others. But there are various ways that we can encourage through hugs and calls and cards and visits and text messages and various ways that we can say, I appreciate you. I love you. I'm glad that you're here. I see you struggling and you're doing the very best that you can. I see that you're growing. I'm so glad that you came today. I'm so glad that you stayed for class. Encourage one another every day. If I said to you, who's the greatest encourager in the New Testament, who would you say? We say Barnabas, probably be unanimous. In fact, his name is Joseph. 
But we know him as Barnabas because he was such an encourager that they nicknamed him Barnabas, the son of consolation or the son of encouragement. Barnabas, that's who he is. Every time, with the exception of Galatians 2, and we can say something about that in a minute, that Barnabas is mentioned, the Bible always shines the light on how great of an encourager he was. In Acts chapter 4, when individuals were giving away their property and selling their goods to help the people that were in need, Acts 4, 33 through 37, individuals gave, but Barnabas gave all. He sold a piece of property that we don't know how long it was in his family's lineage and heritage. He brought the proceeds and unlike Ananias and Sapphira, which would quickly follow, there was no deceit in his heart. He laid it all at the apostles' feet. In Acts 9, when Saul of Tarsus became a Christian, you know what Paul, Paul became a Christian. He's preaching the gospel in Damascus. He comes to join himself to the disciples in Jerusalem, Acts 9, 26. They won't receive him. They, like you and I probably, would be our concern that maybe this is a fake and he wants to infiltrate our ranks. But Barnabas brings him along and says, you know, he's been already testifying of the Lord in Damascus. He should be received. In Acts 11, when there's this exciting new work taking place in Antioch, the disciples send Barnabas, a man full of faith and encouragement and good heart, down to Antioch of Syria to help with that work. And doesn't Barnabas know that Paul's more educated and more talented and that he would outshine him? Why would he dare seek for Saul of Tarsus to come and to do work there? Because Barnabas was an encourager. And after their first missionary campaign, when they come back together and they say, let's go back and see how the other churches are and how they do. There's Paul and Barnabas. And the text says they got into a sharp disagreement over whether or not to take John Mark. And Paul says, listen, John Mark's a little too slow. He gave up the first time. If anybody should have known about second chances, if anybody should have known that people make mistakes and they can rebound and come back, it should have been Paul. But you know, it wasn't. It was Barnabas. He said, I'll take John Mark with me. Now, name the books of the New Testament. Matthew, Mark. Maybe there's no gospel of Mark had it not been for Barnabas. We have no record of a sermon he preached, a miracle he performed. But what we do have is that he encouraged. And the one time he stepped outside of that in Galatians 2, this is what we have the text saying. Even Barnabas. Why say even Barnabas? Because it's so foreign to his character to not be an encourager that the Holy Spirit himself is astonished when it doesn't take place. Even Barnabas was carried away with the hypocrisy. The point is... Barnabas was an encourager, and so can you. Now, this isn't beyond the skill set of any one of us here. You may never preach a sermon, teach a class, translate a text, go on a missionary tour. But every one of us, in our own way, and with the means God has given to us, we can and we must encourage so that hearts on heart and through the deceitfulness of sin. Sin will deceive us. That's what he says in verse 13. How do you keep that from happening? You come alongside people and continue to show them the way of Jesus is better. Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, the verse is 16. After the Hebrew writer has shown Jesus, and this is going to be a lengthy argument that he makes throughout the book. We don't have time to unpack it now, but the high priesthood of Jesus is an important theme throughout the book of Hebrews. And he says, Jesus Christ, in verse 14, passed into the heavens, the Son of God. And then in verse 15, he was in all points tempted like we are, yet without sin. Therefore, because Jesus is all of those things, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we might obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. If you and I want to stay faithful, this is the point for verse four, chapter four. Pray bold prayers. Now, Hebrews chapter one, we have direct communication with God. Hebrews chapter two, be better listeners. Hebrews chapter three, encourage someone every day. Hebrews chapter four, pray boldly, approach the throne of grace. That's what this word means. It means to just come out outspoken, to just say what it is that you need and want and desire. And because Jesus sympathizes with us in verse 15 and he's in the right position in verse 14 in heaven for us to be able to help and aid us, there is no need to tremble. 
or to have step as we enter into the throne room of God, which Jesus has opened up for us, as he'll say later, by a new and living way. Hebrews 10 and verse 20. We can pray bold and outspoken prayers. Do you ever pray puny prayers? You, you know the kind. God is just little old me. I hate to get in the way. I know you've got a whole universe to run. But if you could just do me this one favor. We don't have to approach God like that. And this really isn't important. I know there are a lot of people going through a lot of things. And God, if you could just, the Hebrew writer says, you don't have to do that. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we might obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I find it interesting. Sometimes people say, well, it's not a good idea to only come to God when you want something. And that's true. But it is a good idea to come to God when you want something. Hebrews 4.13 says to come in your time of need, when you need God. That's the right time to come. Now, maybe you should have come earlier, but better late than never. You can find grace and mercy to help. That's what it's there for in our time of need. If you didn't need it, if I didn't need it, we wouldn't come. But we do. And so we come. But it's not just a matter of coming to the throne of God. It's our posture when we do. How do we do it? We come boldly. We're servants in one regard. But sons all the same. We're adopted. We have the privileges of Romans 8 and Galatians 4. We can come into the throne room of God. Tim Keller said, no one wakes a king up at midnight for a cold cup of water. But you and I have that kind of access. We can go before God and say, God, I really need help. Jesus prayed in a way that people had never seen before. John taught his disciples how to pray. They did fast. Luke 5:33. But when Jesus prayed, there was something about his communication, the authenticity of it, that the disciples, many of them have been John's back, John's disciples before. They said in Luke 11 and verse one, would you teach us how to do that? Teach us how to pray like John taught his disciples, because what you have is something that we want. He taught his disciples that men ought always to pray and never to faint. There was a widow in a city and a judge was feared, not God. And though he didn't fear God, this widow went to the judge and she said, avenge me of my adversary. And he would not for a while. But afterward, he said to himself, though I fear not God, nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her of her adversary. And Jesus tells this parable. And then he says, do you hear what the unjust judge says? Luke 18, one through eight. And will not God avenge his own elect, which cried day and night to him, though he suffer long with them? I tell you, he will avenge them speedily. But when the son of man comes, will he find this kind of faith on earth? Will he find people? That will pray like she did persist. It's not Jesus doesn't tell that parable to say, listen, God's a cranky judge. And if you aggravate him enough, he'll just give in and give it to you. That's not the point. The point is God's better than him. And if that judge gave in to a widow who had nothing to offer, will not God give freely to those who he loves and who he longs to help? Pray bold prayers. Pray, God, help me to be stronger. God, help me to grow. Help me and help my unbelief. Give me courage. Give me boldness. Help me to be what you want me to be. Hebrews chapter five. Hebrews chapter five. The verses are 12 through 14. If you and I want to avoid apostasy and help others to do the same. The Hebrew writer says we should grow and challenge ourselves beyond our comfort zones. Now, he wants to get into a detailed discussion of the priesthood of Jesus in comparison with Melchizedek. But he says, I have many things to say about him, but hard to explain, hard to get these things across and utter. Verse 11, because you're dull of hearing. When for the time by now you should be teachers, you have need that one teach you again. First principles of the oracles of God. You become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. For everyone that uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness. He's a babe. But strong meat belongs to those who are of full age, who by reason of use have their senses exercised or they've used them. Now they can discern both good and evil. 
The Hebrew writer says here, you should be further along in your Christianity and your development. But because you're not, you are halting the process. And we can't get into this discussion until you grow. In fact, just ignore the chapter division and notice chapter six, the first four verses. He says, lay aside these elementary principles and doctrines, baptisms and laying on of hands and all of those things. He says, go on into perfection or to spiritual maturity so that we can have the kinds of conversations that we need to have. If we don't grow, if we don't challenge ourselves in this regard, if we continue, if we swim on the shallow end of the spiritual pool all the time. Now, there's a time for the milk of the word and it's helpful. The milk of the word will help you to grow. First Peter two and verse two. But once that has happened, God wants you and he wants me to challenge ourselves and the press toward the goal. I've been talking with the elders here for a few months now and Neil and his family. And I, I know that that's the spirit in the heart of Lehman to say, hey, let's challenge ourselves. Let's grow. How can we reach our community? How can we reach our world? How can we be better here? How can we launch out into the deep as Jesus told his disciples? That's what God wants from every one of us. And it happens individually. And then it happens collectively as we come together and we say we're going to think outside the box, but in the book, we're going to be who God wants us to be. And we're going to do the things that God wants us to do, but we're going to challenge ourselves. Are there books in the Bible for you that are just unread? You know, Zechariah and Nahum and the first nine chapters of Chronicles. Let's just listen to that on full speed, right? Double speed in the Bible reading plan just to get through that. You ever make a plan? I'm going to read through the Bible this year. Genesis, exciting. Exodus, at least the half of it's exciting. All the tabernacle stuff and oh, Leviticus, a.k.a. the daily Bible reading slayer, right? The book of Leviticus, all of those laws and those sacrifices. And what are we going to do? Launch out into the deep. Sometimes a person says, I'm afraid of the book of Revelation. There's nothing to be afraid of. If there was ever an epistle of victory, it's the prophetic and apocalyptic book of Revelation. We've got to challenge ourselves. That doesn't mean we always get it right or there's nothing to learn or we can ever open up and say, I fully arrived. But it is to say, grow in the grace and in the knowledge. Second Peter three and verse 18. Add the Christian graces. The Hebrew writer is encouraging people and he's saying, listen, you should be teachers by now. And I want you to grow. And I know that you can. Hebrews 6, we're going to get to that in a moment, but in verses 4 through 6, there's this challenging passage about falling away and the impossibility of restoration, but that's not his real thrust. In verse 9, he says, but beloved, we're persuaded of better things concerning you, things that accompany salvation. He says, this is what could happen, but I don't think it'll happen in your case because I believe in you. I think you can do it. In fact, I know you will grow, launch out into the deep. We need to be challenged, but we also need people to come alongside us and say, I believe you'll meet the challenge, and I believe we will. Hebrews chapter 6, chapter 6 and verse 12. If you and I would avoid apostasy, if we would be the people that God wants us to be, we should find good examples, and then we should follow in their footsteps. He says, be followers of those who through faith, don't be slothful, but be followers of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. He's going to give a great list of those individuals in chapter 11. He just sort of introduces the idea here. But in chapter 11, he'll give an annotated list of all of those individuals. But he just starts here by saying, don't be lazy. But instead, be followers of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now, there is a Bible full of those people. But there are also pews full of those people right here at Lehman. People that you know, you say, well, listen, when we see individuals that we know and love that have gone through things that we could hardly imagine, our response must not be, I don't know how they've ever done that. I never could if it was me. We should say, I'm encouraged by their faith. I'm not in their shoes and I don't know all the intricacies of how they've overcome. But this is what I do know. I serve the same God that they serve. 
And if she can be here, do you know what she's been through? And if he's here, do you know what he's going through? If they through faith and patience inherit the promises, I won't turn back. I'm going to press forward. They're an example. They're a signpost of the heavenly way. I want to be like them. Paul says, be followers of me, even as I also follow Christ. I want to be like that. I want to emulate their faith. Every one of us, we need people like that. And if we're going to have people like that, we need people in various age brackets that are like that. We should find somebody who's a lot older and say, guess what? I want to be like him. And then we should see individuals that are younger and say, I want to be like them. I want to learn from them. I want to emulate their faith. Be followers of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Chapter 7. I'm getting a little scared about the time here, guys. What about you? Somebody says, 13 chapters. Will we make it? Chapter 7, the verse is 25. This may be my favorite in the list. Wherefore, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God by him, seeing that he ever lives to make intercession for us. What would keep us faithful, what will help us to avoid apostasy is to drink deeply from this reality. Are you going to heaven? Somebody says, well, I hope so. We talked about hope, right, Kevin? We did. That's right. We talked about hope, confident expectation. We hope to go. We don't just hope so. But for Christians, we know so. He's able to save to the uttermost. What does that mean? It means that no one, it doesn't matter if they respond at the 11th hour, will barely make it in. There will be an abundant entrance, 2 Peter 1, 10 through 11. He will open that entrance for us, and he's able to save to the uttermost those who come to God by him. Because notice the rest of verse 25. He ever lives to make intercession for us. Why is Jesus alive at the current? There are a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons why Jesus is alive and at the right hand of God right now is so that he can speak up for you into the ear of God and say, have mercy on this individual. Forgive Hiram, he's made a mistake. He's weak. I know what it's like down there. He ever lives. He's alive to make intercession, to speak up for us and say, don't hold it against him. He's repented. Remember my sacrifice, my blood on his behalf, on her behalf. He ever lives to make intercession for us. He's opened up this way for us. It's encouraging to think that God receives that on our behalf. Job chapter one talks about Job's temptation and how everything sets up. We really don't know if Job ever knew about Job chapter one. I hope he ever, he found out. But in Job chapter one, there's the discussion between the adversary, the Satan and God. And he talks about the faithfulness of Job. And why does the adversary say that Job serves God when God says God offered Job up? Imagine being that faithful that God says, hey, this person's faithful enough to withstand everything. When God says that, what is the adversary's response? Why does Job Job serve? You've got a hedge around him. It pays to serve you is basically what he says. You've got this great 401k plan set up for Job. Everything works his way. Of course he serves you. Notice, God does not deny the accusation. He doesn't say, well, Job doesn't have any of those things. As a matter of fact, he says, okay, we'll take it away from him. And then Job remains faithful. And then chapter 2, yes, skin for skin. All that a man has, he'll give for his life. But when the devil says, Job has this hedge of protection, God doesn't say, no, I don't provide that for my people. He does. Job has it. And we have it. And he's able to save to the uttermost those that come to God by him. He lives to make intercession. He has this hedge through his people, through his passages, through his providence. God provides what we need. Hebrews chapter eight. Hebrews chapter eight, the verses twelve. In Hebrews eight, eight through twelve, this is really an extensive quote from the book of Jeremiah. And you might have a, a reference to this. If you don't, you can just make your own. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, where Jeremiah speaks of this new covenant that would emerge. And this is in this book about greater things with Jesus. And what he says in verse 12 is that God will be merciful to our unrighteousness and his our sins and our iniquities. He will remember no more. That should keep us faithful. The one who has the greatest memory 
of all of anyone who's ever existed says, I will practice willful amnesia concerning your sin. It's not that God doesn't know it. He chooses to forget it. Their sins and their iniquities, I will remember no more. God will forgive us of our sins. As far as the east is from the west, he's removed our transgressions. Psalm 103, verse 12. He doesn't retain his anger forever. Instead, he casts our sins into the depths of the sea. Micah 7, 18 and 19. I, even I am he who blot out your transgressions for my own name's sake. Isaiah 43 and verse 25. God is a remembering God. He'll remember our righteousness. But he delights to forget our wrongdoings. He'll remember our sins and our iniquities no more. If we repent, if we turn from it, God will forget it and God will forgive it. That's encouraging for us to remain faithful to say, I've messed up. I've had days when I've been so low I can't look myself in the mirror. I can't believe that I did that. I thought that. I thought I could get away with that. I did that in the dark. No one knows but me and God. And the only one who knows says, I won't hold it against you. I've seen what you've done. I know who you really are. But I I love you for who you could be in Jesus. The Hebrew writer says, hey, you're about to go back to a system that's inferior to that. Now, maybe you and I don't have that problem. None of us have ever been Jews. We've never lived under the old covenant. But every one of us has areas of comfort, our our comfort zones where we might say it'd be better for me if I could be in this instead of being a Christian. But you wouldn't have the forgiveness that you have in Jesus. And people seek it in this life in various ways and they often come up empty. The Hebrew writer says no more. You don't have to worry about that in Jesus. You could be forgiven of all things, which those under that old law, Acts 13, Paul says in his first sermon that we have recorded, of all the things which your fathers could never be forgiven of, Acts 13, 38 and 39. Hebrews chapter 9. I think we're going to make it, guys. What do you think? Hebrews 9, verse 27. And as it is appointed unto man once to die, and after this the judgment. This may be one of the most famous verses in the book. And his point is about Jesus ever living for us. He goes on to say in verse 28, so Christ often, he once died and he was offered up for us. But Hebrews 9:27 is a sobering reality that one day, every one of us, if the Lord delays his coming, we will meet our earthly demise. What motivates you? They asked Michael Jordan what motivates him. He said failure. Steve Jobs said mortality. Tony Robbins said fear. Walt Disney said, imagination, what motivates you? Well, one of the things that should motivate us is this reality, that one day, if time continues, it's not a happy thing to think about, but we will meet our earthly demise. And because of that, and what he says in the remainder of this verse in verse 27, after this comes the judgment. If I ever think about walking away from Jesus, I'd have to appreciate I'm walking away from my heavenly legal representation, my advocate, the one that will speak up in my place. When I turn away from God, I don't just leave the family of God. I don't just leave the promises and the blessings. I have to stand before him and give an account for myself. And you don't want to represent yourself in the heavenly courtroom, and neither do I. And so we cling to the one who says, I'll represent you. Can you picture the heavenly courtroom? God on the throne is the judge. His son, your advocate, your attorney. They've been talking about you since Jesus ascended back into heaven and he's been pleading your case and begging your pardon. The adversary is the individual standing up saying, do you know that he's done this? Do you know that he's done that? But because of Hebrews 8 and verse 12, God opens up your file in mind. He says, I don't see the charges. His record's clear. Her record's clear. They're forgiven. Because we'll die and one day be judged. It's the sobering reality that says, I really want to be serious about eternal things. Hebrews chapter 10. That was the first bell I heard. Is that right? Was that a bell? Or is that the second bell? That was the second. All right. Well, I guess we'll just I'll give you these and we can study these out. Somebody said I can keep going. So blame it on Neil. All right. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 25 is the one from chapter 10. 
Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. Be around the people that will encourage you. Don't forsake. Don't ever willfully choose. There will be occasions when you can't be here, when I can't, maybe health or otherwise. Never choose to absence yourself. Somebody says, well, one missing one worship service make me unfaithful. Here's a better question. Has anybody ever fallen away from the Lord that didn't begin with just one service? It always begins with just one. And then the problem with missing church is one day you won't miss it. Right. And then after a while, it just becomes Hebrews 10, 25 says, don't get in this habit. There are good habits to practice in Hebrews chapter 10 and the book throughout the book. But don't practice this one. Hebrews chapter 11 is verse 25. He says about Moses, he forsook the pleasures of Egypt and he didn't enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Don't let anybody ever tell you that sin isn't fun. But don't ever let anybody tell you that the fun will last. Because Moses knew that the pleasures of sin, they would only be seasonal. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28 and verse 29. We are a part of an unshakable kingdom. The kingdom that will not be destroyed. Everyone else is building their house on a sandcastle. Every other religion is giving swimming lessons to drowning men. But you and I are a part of a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And then the last one from chapter 13, verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. If we do that, and if we do what he says in verse 17, and submit to those that have the rule over us as we love one another, and hold up their hands as they shepherd and lead our souls, this little word of exhortation won't fall on deaf ears. It won't be in vain for you or for me. It'll be to our eternal prophet. And we'll meet the one that the Bible says is in heaven, longing to make intercession for us. I appreciate your time and attention, and thanks for a good Bible class this morning.